Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. What's up, you guys? It's Anna David here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you are new to the show, this is a re-release of a very popular episode. In fact, it was an episode that iTunes featured on its homepage. Yeah, that was a big deal. Anyway, that's because it's with Moby. You know who Moby is? He's one of those people who doesn't even need a last name. Now, the focus of the show back in the day was on addiction and recovery, so that's what we talk about. But he's such a brilliant guy that we get into far more than that. And so, yeah, this is one of those re-releases as I gear up for the new focus of the show, which will be debuting January 1st, 2020. Get excited about that. That's when I'm going to be talking about the best ways for creatives to launch their projects into the stratosphere. But until then, this is Moby. We were just talking about um, the difficulty of balancing the tradition of anonymity mm-hmm. with wanting people to know about yeah. this amazing way to find recovery. Yes, and that's because I'm perfectly happy talking about like addiction, sobriety, twelve-step programs. Right. But then there's that. The tr- I also understand the value of the tradition that says we should have anonymity at press, radio, etc. Yeah. Because, like, it makes perfect sense to me. Like, if if I go out in public and talk about my being a part of AA, and then the next day I go out and relapse, it hurts AA. And so I sort of, I understand that, but I also understand, like, you want to ideally be of service. Right. You know, and so it's, and it's tricky because there's also quite a lot of precedent for people talking about their battles with addiction. You know, like I right. listen to speaker tapes right. and there are people who are very open about being, you know, addicts and in 12-step programs. So I I guess I don't quite know the best way to approach it, whether to like, be like you know, a flag-waving member of a 12-step program or just simply, I guess maybe the thing to do is just keep the focus on myself and not yeah. and not worry too much you know it, it, I, I mean I go through this struggle and when I first started writing well my I, I wrote books I mean I guess it's past tense now but I my first book was a novel about mm-hmm. sort of my journey um, and I changed I really wanted people to understand you know the process of recovery but I changed all the language I sort of made it I don't even mm-hmm. remember what I called sponsors but something else and, and mentors helpers I think I called them mentors mm-hmm. yeah and it and and I was really dedicated to that process of protecting the specifics but it it's sort of a ridiculous part of the book and so then when I started really writing about, addiction and recovery exclusively mm-hmm. my first stance was absolutely not no AA will never be mentioned and then I started to read and see all these people trashing AA and I was like how come they don't have a tradition and how can mm-hmm. this thing that can't be defended because we're not allowed to say we're in it yeah. say that those are lies yeah 
right? Yeah, the whole thing is tricky. That's yeah. why I feel like turn things over and just sort of try and do my best. Right. Um, and, you know, the idea of like, I mean, and also sort of being guided by the tone of the program. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that I love about AA, speaking objectively, well, subjectively as well, is the character of it. When you read it, it's never rigid. Right. It's never dogmatic. Right. You know, there's a whole thing like wear your sobriety like a loose garment. Right. Like, um, you, you know, so I find like rigidity and dogma on either end of the spectrum, you know, doesn't make sense to me. So I'd rather just sort of like channel the spirit of Bill W. and be like, you know what? I mean, like Bill W. probably wrote the 11th step or the 11th tradition, whichever tradition says there should oh, be anonymity. But then he wasn't anonymous because everyone know. knows who Bill W. is. So it's, and he wrote books as Bill W. So it's, I feel like just, I guess there's also has to be that question of what's our intention. Yes. You know, because like sometimes people want to talk about their sobriety or whatnot in an almost evangelical way. Right. That's a little weird. It is. And sometimes people want to almost use it as a way of self-promotion. Right. But I, I hope that if the focus is kept, like if the intention is surface, and if before doing anything, you simply like ask for God's will to be done, it increases the chances that the results might be okay. Yes, I completely agree. I've never actually thought about Bill Wilson wasn't anonymous. I mean, it's a hundred percent true. Yeah, like we know everything about him. Yeah, I've seen interviews with him on YouTube. We know like, his wife. You know, we know that he took LSD to try and like you know enhance his sobriety. Like, right? He had, he had a very complicated life because. And I think that's a big part of, at least for me, is like recovery is like accepting that we are complicated people. Like right. by definition, the human condition is very complicated. Yes. And to pretend that sobriety or any aspect of the human condition is going to be simple, it just isn't true. Right. You know, and that's why like I love, one of the things I love about AA is like the humor and the honesty. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really is like, the, the cornerstone of the program is honesty. Mm -hmm. You know, being honest with yourself, being honest with your fellows, if fellows is a gender-neutral term. I think it is. Being honest with God, but, like, true honesty. Yeah. You know? Which is actually where the humor comes from. Yeah. Nobody, I mean, with exceptions, is trying to be funny. Nobody's treating it like a stand-up gig. Yeah, I mean, some... I've, I've actually... I've seen some people who are, like, such good speakers. Like, they actually hit, like, almost, like... Amway salesman type professional beats and I'm like man good keep it entertaining yeah it is a bummer though when you hear one of those circuit speakers you know for the second or third time and you're like oh that wasn't off the cuff at all you yeah. memorized this speech yeah. which you know what I just the more time I spend doing this the more I realize as much as I love judging people judging implies godlike omniscience right. which as far as I know I don't have right so Whenever I want to judge someone, I'm like, you know what? It's just not my place. Like, because judging implies that I know where they're coming from. Right. And it also implies that I know where they're going. Right. You know, so like some circuit speaker who seems like too glib and smug and professional, like you never know. Tomorrow, they might relapse and come back like the most humble, right. great, open person ever. So it's just who knows where everyone's going. 
It's true. It's true. And anything I judge is just, uh, you know, I'm, I have my beats that I tell and my story mm-hmm. too. And it's like my fear around me, you know, yeah. relating to that. And also what you said reminds me of, you know, the, my personal favorite story in our book. Uh, you know, it was called an, it was called Dr. Alcoholic Addict when I got sober. And now, because I'm an old timer, mm-hmm. and now it's called "and acceptance is the answer," where where basically the line is, I'm paraphrasing, but he says it much better, Dr. Paul, uh, that that you know if I if I'm finding fault with my life, I'm finding fault with God. I'm saying I know more than God, which I repeat to sponsees pretty yeah. much every day. And that's a that for me, that's a big part of like the well, and I I sometimes can veer into like what I feel like is like. AA 12-step cliche land right. where, where I sound like a cult member. Right. But what you're describing was the sort of like for me the aha moment mm-hmm. is up until I did my third and fourth step I and fifth step, I assumed that there were things in my past that should not have happened. Right. And I assumed that I knew best. And unpacking that and looking at it suddenly made me realize like oh I'm not God I simply I can have preferences but I can't judge right because there's so much evidence in my life of like things that I desperately wanted to happen that did happen and were terrible right things that I desperately wanted to happen that didn't happen and ended up being so great you know for the best that they didn't happen so I simply you stand back and just say like you know there's a universe that's 15 billion years old And there are things at work in this universe that are very ancient and loving and benign and involved. I, for me to try and control them is so absurd. I I mean, and I feel exactly the same way. And yet, yeah, I mean, it does, whatever, this is an unnecessary tangent, but it does seem like some people are really good at that. They really can. I don't know the Tony Robbins sort of mindset, which I think is somewhat spiritual, but you know, but that that you can sort of decide what you want. Yeah. Again, I maybe that works for them. Yeah. Maybe there are people on the planet who have a degree of omniscience that I don't have, mm-hmm. and maybe they are capable, like the Secret or Tony Robbins, of deciding that they want something and truly understanding it's for the best. Mm-hmm. All I can do is have inclinations and preferences. And go before God and say, you know what? It might be nice to have this happen, but simply everything saying, like, your will, not mine, be done. Right. And not in a, like, hopefully not in a way that's appeasing God. You right. Know, hopefully not in a way of saying, like, your will, not mine, be done, because I don't want you mad. Right. But actually honestly saying, like, your will, not mine, be done, because I'm not God. Have, have you felt the difference in your life when you really are doing that versus when you're saying you're doing that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's always, like, the glib lip service yeah. of, like, doing everything in my power to try and do, to do something, but then sort of in the back of my mind, like, saying, like, oh, yeah, God's will be done. Right. Um, but really not, almost like not wanting God's will to be done. No. You know, sort of saying, like, God, your will be done if it... Is mine. Is mine. Yeah. And... It's so, but the real remarkable change happens when you actually completely hand something over that you truly care about. Yeah. You know, and that, because part of it is us slowly coming to realize that, like, 
the universe is complicated, but I truly believe that it's it's incredibly benign. Mm-hmm. You know, like involved and benign to a remarkable extent. Mm-hmm. And it's so involved in our lives that we don't even see it. Like it's like gravity. Right. Like no one ever stops to thank gravity, <laughs> you know, because it's constant and that it's just there, you know, and I feel like the, the for me, the divine is that, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and if I look at the things that are wrong with the world or ostensibly wrong with the world, usually it's stuff that humans have right, done man. because humans are at odds with the divine, you know, right. like humans have removed, like they've, they've left Eden and are screwing things up. You know, so Eden's still there, and the divine is still there, waiting to be this wonderful, loving, healing force. Um, and we work against it. What about natural disasters? Then I don't, I don't know of too many that I can judge. I can be. I can, it's also, I guess, from my perspective, like let's look at a tsunami. Mm-hmm. A tsunami. I I can't say it's wrong. I can say it's incredibly sad. So I think that. As humans, this is just my perspective, yeah. we're 100% allowed to have an emotional reaction without judgment. You know, so I can't say after a tsunami, like that shouldn't have happened because I'm not God. What I can say is it's incredibly sad, it's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking for the people who were killed, it's heartbreaking for the family members of the people who were killed. Like, there's the sadness without judgment, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And so was this something that has developed, clearly it's developed more since you've been sober, but was it something you had before that? I had it in, I mean, I have such a weird spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, I was a punk rock atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I became a very serious Christian, but like a Kierkegaardian New England style Christian mm-hmm. where I was a sort of open-minded but really just like a judgmental dick mm-hmm. and and then so like I was sober Christian and militant about everything and then I started reading about quantum mechanics I started drinking again and I became much more loose in my spirituality and then so coming into my new weird spirituality it's informed by so many different things like mm-hmm. there's a Judeo-Christian component, there's a Sufi component to it, there's a Kabbalistic component, there's Taoism, there's quantum mechanics, there's Satanism, there's, I mean, like, I sort of feel like every spiritual tradition has something remarkable and legitimate to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to discount any of them, Mm -hmm. which anyone within one dogma would hate me for that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, a Christian or a militant Muslim or what have you would look at me and just see me as a spiritual dilettante. Whereas my perspective is like one of the worst aspects of my life, and I think of most people's lives, is our proclivity to judge and control. And when I see spirituality and religion being an extension of someone's desire to judge and control, I sort of back away from it. Yeah, it does seem to be missing the point mm-hmm. of it a little bit. Do, so how long was that period where you were not drinking because you were Christian? Eight years. Eight years. And that was how many years before you got sober? Well, my, this is my, one of my only 
claims to fame as a sober person mm -hmm. is my first sort of sobriety date. I was 13 years old. Oh, Jesus Christ. Meaning that's the first time I stopped drinking and doing drugs. Because I'd started when I was 9 or 10. So you got to drinking age, basically, when you started again. And then, yeah, so like 14, I just, I didn't go to meetings, but at 14, I was like, I'm done with drinking and drugs. How, when did you start? When I was 9 or 10. But I had a lot of really scary experiences, like 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, and it wasn't fun. I didn't mm -hmm. do it because I enjoyed it. I did it because I wanted to hang out with the cool kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from like 14, say 14 or 15 to 22, I was a very paradoxical, like I would go to straight edge shows, mm -hmm. put an X on the back of my hand, you know, maintain the straight edge dogma and then go out and get drunk. Mm -hmm. um, and then I worked in a bar and I drank compulsively. And then when I was 22, I stopped drinking and stayed sober for eight years without meetings, teaching Bible study, just being like such a dick. Like I was mm -hmm. so judgmental and so critical of everybody who disagreed with me. Mm -hmm. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, um, I started drinking again and had about 13 years of increasingly degenerate, dysfunctional, lunatic drinking and drug use. And so during those years, did you know you had a problem in the back of your head? No, I just thought I was an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. Like some people, friends would come to me and say, like, I think you might have a drinking problem. It's like, no, 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 I just love it. Right. Like I just, I, and I was like, I love chocolate cake and I love puppies and I love alcohol. Right. Like it was, it was in my category of things that I just truly loved. And then in hindsight, I was like, oh yeah, I really love chocolate cake. I've never in one sitting had more than one, maybe two pieces of chocolate cake. That alone is impressive to me. Yeah, you know, like I've never, I love dogs. I have never missed work and compromised health and friendships to play with dogs. Whereas <laughs> like every time I drank, I couldn't have less than 10 drinks. Right. You know, so that's, that goes beyond love, like preferential love and enters the world of true chemical compulsion. And, you know, even though you have alcoholism and addiction in your family, mm -hmm. so you, the denial was good enough that you could say, oh, well, it's not, it's not me. Yeah, I guess it's because there's the sort of like conventional cultural way of like perceiving alcoholism. Right. And when I was growing up, an alcoholic was someone who drank every day from the time they woke up until the time they went to sleep and they were getting in car accidents and they couldn't hold down a job and they had cirrhosis of the liver. I was like, that's an alcoholic. You know, like a passed out guy in the Bowery. That's the alcoholic. And I looked at myself and I was like, well, I get drunk five nights a week mm -hmm. and I can't go out and have less than 10 drinks and I'm always hung over. And when I'm not drinking, all I do is think about drinking. But mm -hmm. to me, that was just fun mm -hmm. you know it didn't dawn on me that that was compulsion until about two or three years before I finally got sober I started to try to practice some moderation mm. and I simply couldn't do it like I just literally couldn't do it and that was the first inkling that I had that I might have a real problem and then what did you do well I mean so I yeah I've read some 
you know, some of the stuff about, you know, so you have this part, you had like a party house, like a really nice party house outside of I, the city. I had a 60 acre estate in upstate New York and the main house was 10,000 square feet and then there were two 3,000 square feet guest houses and it was surrounded by state nature preserve. It would have been a beautiful like yoga retreat, but instead I put a disco in the basement, mm -hmm. turned one of the bedrooms into a spa and had flawless degenerate parties. Well, I mean, why I didn't know you then, I yeah, can't it was, imagine. I really, the, one of my only brags is that when I threw parties, I threw the best right. parties. Like, like I remember it was December of 2001 and like September 11th had happened and everybody I knew in lower Manhattan was so depressed and drinking too much and doing too many drugs and just anxious so a friend and I rented a huge spa in Lower Manhattan and had the most like crazy drug-fueled degenerate party and years later people would stop me on the street and like say like take my hand and say thank you. Right. Like that was the best party I've ever been to. So I really knew how to throw good parties because I was an alcoholic and I was essentially just throwing a party for myself. Yeah, your dream party. Yeah. I, you know, it, some of the stuff that I've read that you've said about it, it it's kind of, I really, you, it almost is like you use, you romanticize your old hangovers. Like, mm -hmm. you've talked about that a lot, and then, you know, it was the, the, the fact that the hangovers were getting bad was, you know, and I loved being hungover. At first. Oh, God, I loved it so much because, you know, I think a lot of alcoholics are very type A and we got to run around and do stuff. And a hangover was like the one time I let myself lie on mm -hmm. the couch and watch movies. Well, so this is funny. I was out to dinner last night um, with a bunch of sober friends and they all got sober in their 20s and 30s. So how old were you when you... 29. So here's the thing. Like, what you guys missed, and I'm grateful that you... I'm happy for you that you've missed this. What you miss is the quality of hangovers when you get into your 40s. Right. It changes. And it, no one escapes from it. Like even non-alcoholics, their hangovers get worse in their 40s. But if you're an alcoholic, as you start to get older, like when I was 20 years old, hangovers were amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I felt like Charles Bukowski or Dylan Thomas. <laughs> and like I could still function. And by like 11 o'clock in the morning, I was fine. Towards the end, the hangovers never stopped. Mm. You know, like I was always hungover. And it wasn't just like feeling a little sick. It was feeling poisoned to the core of my being. Like every cell felt gray and ill. And I couldn't romanticize them anymore. Right. Like I couldn't find anything good or redeemable in a hangover. Okay, and it's interesting that you use the word poison specifically because you have that line in the day about, you know, it's, it's part of the course, I think, you know, about I'm I, was mm -hmm. I tried as hard as I could to poison myself. I'm not quoting mm -hmm. you correctly. I don't even know the lyrics, but yeah. How could you not know the lyrics? I wrote it a while ago. Okay. I'm sure I'd remember them if I saw them, but yeah. Um, and so, and, and drugs, um, you was it mostly ecstasy? I... I don't know if this is an expression that's used everywhere, but in New York, when I was getting sober, the expression was a garbage head, mm -hmm. you know, meaning I would get drunk and then do anything. Mm -hmm. So I never, ever did drugs without getting drunk first, you know, so I was, I'm like just a straight up alcoholic, mm -hmm. but once I was drunk, 
I loved the only drug I didn't like was pot. Yeah, I hate pot. Oddly enough, I that was dead. the one. The one thing I just didn't like it. It made me feel slow and stupid and sluggish. Yeah. And whereas everything else, I mean, like opiates, psychedelics, speed, cocaine, anything. You don't like ketamine. Uh, I never. Basically, there's some drugs like ketamine, 2CB, some other things that I only ever did when I was so drunk that I don't even remember what the drug experience was like. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so, but yeah, I would. So I, I categorize myself as like 90% alcoholic, 10% drug abuser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was the opposite, by the way. Same proportion, well, I would say. What's fascinating is AA now, especially in the big cities, I'd say a good, vast majority of the people in AA meetings are people who've had issues with drugs who identify as alcoholics, which I fully understand because it took me until my late 40s to finally be beaten by, I forget the way Bill, like the the way he describes like the the demon of alcohol shivering in his den or whatever. so alcohol, you can be an alcoholic for a long time before it catches up to you. Drugs mess people up a lot faster. So I fully understand, like, I have friends who got sober when they're 22 because they had had, like, four years of insane compulsive drug use. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, like, two months is a long time to do coke considering how mm-hmm. bad the day after the day after is, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know how people survive it. Uh, I mean, yeah, humans, were like cockroaches without a shell you know like well that's the weird thing about humans is a human can fall in the bathtub and die in an instant or fill itself with poisons for decades and be okay yeah or relatively okay like we're such a weird paradoxical species like we're so fragile and so intrepid at the same time that's so interesting it's so mm-hmm. true so when you when you you know the jig was up and you said i gotta i gotta do this were you uh oh i'm gonna go to aa or well so, my sobriety date was October 18th, 2008. Mm-hmm. That was not my first sobriety date. Mm-hmm. Um, I said my first sobriety date was when I was 13 or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. My second sobriety date was when I was 22 or 23, thereabouts. Um, and then, I'm trying to count how many times I went in and out of AA in the two years before I finally got sober. So... I went in, let's say 2006, got 30 days, went out. Mm-hmm. Went back in, got 15 days, went out. Went back in, got 60 days, went out. Went, went in, had three months, went out. Like, it was just this re- true revolving door because I hadn't fully accepted that I was an alcoholic. I had no idea. In my mind, AA was just a room of people talking about being drunk and... I didn't know that there was a spiritual program. Like, I would go to AA meetings, and these old drunks would say, you know, because deep down, AA is about having a spiritual life and being having a spiritual program. And I just didn't, that didn't make sense to me. I just thought AA was a clubhouse for drunks. Mm-hmm. And then, finally, October 18th, 2008, I showed up at an AA meeting, but truly defeated. Like, just like done you know that that magic word that i think has to be a part of an alcoholic or addict story surrender. done yeah. done surrender like when you just when you yeah. walk in you're just like yeah 
I, I, I'll do it. Because every other time I came into a meeting, I just wasn't done yet. Yeah. Even if I thought I was, in the back of my mind, there was that little itchy worm saying, you know what, maybe just haven't figured out the right combination of okay. things, you know. And then that was that magic day where I just walked in and held up my hand and said, <clears throat> you know, that like, I'm an alcoholic and truly accepted it. Had you been somewhat silent until that point, or were you identifying as a newcomer whenever I would you sometimes went out? talk because mm-hmm. I'm a loudmouth. Mm-hmm. Like, so I'd go to meetings and I was amazed. Like, one of the things that kept me in the revolving door of AA for about 18 months was I would go to meetings and there'd be like these beautiful women with tattoos telling intimate stories about their emotional and spiritual life. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is great. This is why I went to bars to have these conversations. But like, this is happening at 1 p.m. in a yoga studio or a church basement. Yeah. Um, so the, that sort of kept me coming back. Mm-hmm. But then finally, when I finally came back, I was like, I just am truly here because I don't know what else to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, well, I've been sober. I lived in New York for three years in my sobriety. And I find it very different. I mean, my my sort of concept of sobriety in, in mm-hmm. New York is like, yeah, I'm sober. You know, I'll, I'll live it out till the end. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas here, it's very, very different. And I don't know that I would have gotten sober had I tried to start it in New York. It's tricky. I mean, clearly, New York has remarkable meetings. I mean, there's something like 3,000 12-step meetings a week mm-hmm. in New York County. Mm-hmm. Um L.A. County, I think, has like 2,500 12-step meetings a week. So, like, there's a lot of sobriety in New York. But the culture of New York is a culture of drinking and drug use. Getting sober in New York is great, but isolating. Because you're, like, it's almost like, in a way, like, when you get sober in New York, you remove yourself from the mainstream of life. Mm Because the mainstream of life in New York is going to bars going to parties, doing drugs, being degenerate, what have you. Whereas getting, being sober in L.A. is actually joining the mainstream of life. Like, like being a drunk in L.A., you give up hiking, you give up sunshine, you mm-hmm. give up, you know, like... So I, I do feel, at least for me, the quality of life and quality of sobriety in Los Angeles is just nicer, you know? Absolutely. The same way that, like, being hungover in New York... Like, if it's the middle of February and it's 31 degrees and sleeting outside, being hungover in New York isn't terrible. Like, you look out the window and you're like, you know what, I don't want to go outside. Yeah, anyway. I wouldn't be doing anything. Whereas anyway. being hungover in L.A. and having had a lot of experience with both, when you're hungover and you look outside and it's 74 degrees and there's not a cloud in the sky, you feel horrible. Yeah. Like, it's just this, you just, you feel like such a dirty, squashed bug. Yeah, no, that's true. And also, people get sober uh, faster or more often here because of DUIs. Which, it's odd. I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I wonder, this is a, and it's not, never my place to judge, but I, I think there's a difference between getting sober because of the bad consequences of using mm-hmm. as opposed to getting sober because you're an addict. And I think yeah. that, like, I've I've known, especially some of my female friends in AA will get sober because they're very ashamed of their behavior. Like, they'll go out, 
too many times get drunk, have one night stands, miss work, and they're really, they're, it's not who they want to be, but they're not an, they're not an addict. Mm-hmm. You know, because they, like, I have an ex-girlfriend who would get drunk, do regrettable things, but also was capable of having a glass of wine with dinner. Mm-hmm. And so she'd wonder if she was an alcoholic, but the truth is she was just confronted with a lot of negative consequences of drinking, which... By all means, I think 12-step programs should, everybody, regardless of whether an addict or not, can benefit from a 12-step program. But I do think some people get sober and get involved in 12-step programs without actually being addicted to anything. And which is, it's not my place to judge, but I, but then sometimes people will go out and be okay. Yes. And that's, it's very challenging for some of us. Very confusing. Because then, like... For, for a while, I would look at people going out, and they'd be like, oh, I've, people would say, like, I've gone out, I have a glass of sangria with brunch, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And I start thinking, well, could I do that? Yes, of course. But then I had this really nice realization for me, which was I would hear people in meetings saying, like, oh, I just wish I could go out and have, like, two glasses of wine. And I realized I have no interest in having yeah. two glasses of wine. I want 15 drinks and a bag of shitty cocaine and I want to stay up until all hours just drunk and high and stupid with no consequences. Yes. Two glasses of wine with dinner is offensive to me. Well, yeah, you feel achy and you might get a headache. Yeah, like I want chaos, destruction, degeneracy (laughs) without a hangover. Yeah, no, I relate to that. My first, my job when I got sober was covering parties uh, for Premier Mm -hmm. Magazine. And I, it was very challenging because I was out at these things and open bars and, and all of that stuff. And then, well, that was when I first noticed that not everybody walks straight to the bar and does shots. I never knew that. Neither did I. That was a, it's funny you mention that because before I got sober, I believed that alcohol was the greatest thing in the world. And I just assumed that everybody loved it as much as I did. Right. And then I got sober and I'd go out to dinner and I started noticing like people would only half finish a drink or someone would order a beer and it would get warm during dinner Mm -hmm. and that was when I realized as you were saying like yeah like very few people have the relationship to alcohol that I have whereas I assumed everybody did I thought I was just normal like same thing like I love chocolate cake everybody loves chocolate cake I love drinking everybody loves drinking and you realize some people are just normal which is fascinating in terms of denial because how could we not notice that? You I, know? I was myopic. I, I mean, all I cared about, like, I walked into a bar or a party, and the only two things I know, well, I noticed three things the music, mm-hmm. how many women were there, and where the bar was. But not in that, in the, in the opposite order. Like, right. First thing was, like, find the bar and order two drinks, because I never wanted. Like, you'd finish the first yeah. drink, and then, especially if there's a line at yeah, the bar. Yeah, you gotta wait. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's the only, the sort of a tangent, the only actual fight I got in in my adult life was at a bar because someone wouldn't get out of my way and I wanted to order a drink. Like, I was, and I still, this still does bother me when people sit at a bar yes. when it's crowded because yes. the bar is where you go to order a drink. You don't yeah. sit at the bar. Or when it's a really big person yeah. who's taking a long time. So I remember it was about six months before I got sober, 
I was at a bar in New York. It was very crowded. And there were these two guys sitting at the bar. And I tapped one on the shoulder and said, oh, can I just get past you to order my drink? And he looked at me and didn't respond. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh. I was like a mama bear separated from her cub. Mm -hmm. I was like, you don't separate me from my drink. And I tapped him again. I was like, can I just get past you? And he said something like, you know, fuck off. And I grabbed him and I said, get out of my way. I want a drink. Oh, yeah. And he took a swing at me. I took a swing at him. And security separated us. That's crazy. And I was just so upset that I couldn't get my drink. Yes. That's... And it seemed perfectly rational to me. Right. Like, when someone said, like, why did you get in a fight? I was like, because well, he was preventing me from getting a drink. Yeah. And I was like, that's Reasonable. the best reason to ever, like, like, other acceptable reasons would be like, oh, he was going to attack my children. He was burning <laughs> down my house. He was killing orphans. He was preventing me from getting alcohol. I love talking about sobriety and drunkenness. But if there's anything that can sort of be of service to people. Yes. I mean, that's the entire motivation yeah. behind what I do. It's not um, to, you know, brag about being sober. And, mm -hmm. oh, and that reminds me of the one thing, you know, the, the argument that if you go out, then you have, you know, just you have, you know, maligned AA. I don't even really believe that. That's something that frustrates me as well, because... Like, I'll read these articles. For some reason, it seems like the New York Times guns to, like, bring down AA. Yes. There are a lot of articles about, like, you know, looking at other things like moderation, management, and harm reduction, and different sober modalities. Yes. And, of course, if it's up to each person, their life and their relationship with God. If someone practices harm reduction and it works for them, great. If someone drinks... Great. If someone yeah. gets sober on their own, great. Like, all I know is for me, AA is the thing that works. Right. And the 12-step program works. And there's nothing in AA that says it's the only way to do it. There's nothing in AA that even says, if you're in AA, you have to do it this way. Right. You know, the only condition for membership is a desire to stop drinking. You don't even have to stop drinking. Yes. It's amazing, too, um, how the main argument against it is that it's so militant. Yeah. And, of course... Humans are militant, and there are a lot of people within AA who are very dogmatic and militant, but the program itself is so gentle, benign, open. Yes. You know, and, uh, but I also do think, like, and also there's really nothing in AA that says you have to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, there's that one part that says, if you think you might not be an alcoholic, go out and try drinking. Yeah. Like, so when people judge AA and say, oh, but that person was in AA and they relapsed. I mean, it's not my place to judge, but for some people, like for me, relapsing really helped in terms of finally bringing me back in and willing to commit to the program. Yeah, and say, I had the same experience. But, and, and, but also it's like, I think by being open about the struggles, mm -hmm. I mean, nobody is going out there and saying, I'm in AA and I'm going to stay sober forever. Yeah. You know. They say, I'm in AA and today I'm sober. And I hope to stay sober forever. Yeah, but, but who knows? Life is complicated. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, so, so yes. I mean, the whole entire point is to be of service. And I've had people come up to me in meetings and say, you know, I, I came here because I heard your hmm. podcast. Um, the podcast seems to reach a lot more people I run into than the actual website mm -hmm. the articles. But, um, and that's amazing. 
you know, or I'll get emails that say, I want to get sober, I can't, but I'm listening, Um, which is amazing because the entire impetus was when I got sober in 2000, um, I, you know, I thought it was for, you know, I thought you got there and you talked about how much you missed drinking Mm -hmm. and you smoked a lot of cigarettes and then, and then you sort of, you know, but, you know, buckle up, we'll get through this together. I had no idea it was the beginning of my life. Yeah. Well, also, I had no idea that one of the first, like, one of the goals of sobriety was to have a real spiritual life. Right. And not a namby-pamby, like, Hallmark greeting card spiritual life, but an actual spiritual life based on honesty. And I literally, like, it's it's so odd and amazing and paradoxical that, like, bottomed-out drunks get sober and then go on to have a spiritual life. Like, that's that's not a normal trajectory. No. You know? And I think that confuses a lot of people. And also, it's, like, the 12 steps, when you look at them, you know, printed on some vinyl hanging at the front of a church basement, they just seem bizarre. Yeah. They seem, they seem God-obsessed and weird. But, and... I'm, a, I'm an AA cliche in saying this, but like they only make sense once you're doing them. And once you're doing them with someone who knows what they're doing. Yes. You know, and the way each step reveals itself and unfolds, it's, you know, it's magical. So at the end of it, there should, like, if I really think, like, if you've been led to do them in a, not a correct way, but in a beneficial way, right. like, at the end of it, you are a different person. Absolutely. And it's, and it's hard because I will go to meetings and I'll see people who are still, like, it's they're almost in purgatory. You know, like, they've stopped drinking, they've stopped using, but they haven't fully committed to, like, a new spiritual life. And so they're holding on to anger, holding on to resentments, holding on to bitterness, holding on to expectations, and they're sober. And I was like, you might as well go drink. Yeah. You know, like, if you're going to be an angry, bitter, mean person, like, go be an anger, angry, bitter, mean person who drinks, because at least that way maybe you'll bottom out and come back in and do the work. Yeah, or you'll get your medicine for a little while yeah. or whatever it is. So I, too, get frustrated when people either criticize AA for being too God-centric, because, as we both know, the God in AA can be anything. Yeah. It could be a peanut if the you want it to be a peanut. Yeah. Um, or when people say AA is not working because all these people in AA have relapsed. But that's not how we judge it. You know, like, that's the... It's the quality of someone's spiritual life in the moment, I think, is the only way of judging AA. Yeah, and I and the thing about the New York Times and, and other very intelligent publications yeah. doing that, um, I think it's very, very difficult to understand, if not impossible to understand until you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some very intelligent, solid writers who have tried it, doesn't work, and write books about how it doesn't work and use their intelligence and their connections yeah in order to perpetuate that idea because it makes them feel better. In the book, there's talk of contempt uh, prior to investigation, which I think is a great concept. Um, Like someone judging a movie before they've seen it. Mm -hmm. But then even more damaging is contempt with limited investigation. Like someone, and I was guilty of this for a long time. Like I went to a few AA meetings, and after four AA meetings, I decided... I understood AA, mm-hmm. and I was critical of it. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done any step work. I hadn't even talked to anyone in an <laughs> AA meeting. I just sat in the back of the room and judged it. Mm-hmm. And 
I find a lot of people who write about AA are unfortunately coming from that perspective, like very limited involvement. I mean, similar in a way to like visiting a city. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have friends whose parents hate New York who've never been to New York. Right. I have friends whose parents hate New York because they went there once in 1979 for three days and got mugged. Right. Same way I have friends who hate Los Angeles because they come here and they stay in a crummy hotel, get stuck in traffic, and fly back to wherever they're from. Yes. I was like, that's very limited investigation. And the beauty of a thing, whether it's a place or a program or a person, oftentimes is only revealed over time with actual involvement. Yeah, that's so true. That's why dating is such a, you know, ridiculous yeah. thing for that exact reason. Yeah. Um, but, but we have to end. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. It's oh, been my pleasure. sheer pleasure. And I hope that somehow our talking, if anyone listens to it, that somehow maybe it's a benefit to someone who's trying to get sober or struggling with sobriety. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my only suggestion to, to someone is like be nice to yourself um, be, get sober not to like make your friends happy not to make the people in AA happy not to make the god of AA happy but sort of get sober for yourself take care of yourself and do the work as thoroughly and honestly as you can Yes. It, and not to do the work to make other people happy you mm-hmm. know not like oh saying, like, I need to do the 12 steps because my sponsor wants me to. Like, do the 12 steps because after doing them, you will gain remarkable benefits. Yes, mm. and pain is the greatest motivator of all that yeah. I know of. Yeah, and asking, like, one, like, a couple of questions that I try to ask myself when I'm having sort of, like, negative emotional states. One, what's the role of fear in this? Yes. Like, because fear... Like, it's almost like these weird cornerstones of AA. There's honesty on one side and fear on the other side. And fear is so insidious and so destructive, but we're not aware of it. You know, and if if we can be that honest with ourselves and say, like, in this... Oh, hi, dragonfly. I don't see it. I know that podcasts aren't visual, but a dragonfly just sort of flew in and flew out. So you say. I didn't see it. Um, Yeah, I do hallucinate sometimes. (laughs) Uh... But like being, practicing and getting skillful and identifying where the fear is and the vulnerability. Yes. And that can be so powerful when you can go to someone and be honest and vulnerable. You know, whether it's a friend, a sponsor, someone, you know, like let yourself be vulnerable and do the work. Yeah. Okay. Great note to end on. Thank you. Hey, it's me, Anna, again. Wow, what do you what do you have to say about that? I hope you'll email me about this one. You can just email me at Anna at AnnaDavid.com. Um, thank you. I hope and imagine you appreciate Moby doing this. And um, yeah, see you next time. It's going to be hard to live up to this one. Bye.